And so tonight, we want to again, again, we're going to do a two-parter again. Uh, joy in humility. What does it look like to have joy in humility? So let's read this here. We're going to be back in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I don't know how much humility is something that you think about in your life. And as I thought about this, I realized, you know, one of the truest, surefire, most surefire, genuine ways to get some humility in your life is to be humiliated, right? There's nothing like being humiliated that brings true humility into your heart. And if that's the case, I've got to be one of the most humble people I know. Um, Because I've got plenty of stories I think I could share. But I'll just share one. It was fall of my junior year of high school. I'd hurt my knees uh, in football. uh, And so I kind of devoted a lot of my time towards drama towards the theater, and I loved it. And I'd actually gotten the lead in the fall play, the fall of my junior, junior year. Uh, it was a Shakespeare play, The Taming of the Shrew. And it was opening night, first nights, my first time being a lead in a play. I, like, dominated this script, y'all. Like, we did the original Shakespeare. I was so good. Anyway, told you I'm the most humble person I know. Um, I was really excited about this. We, the whole play goes amazing. We get to the final scene of this play. And the whole cast is on stage during the final scene. And there's this big moment where I'm supposed to address Kate, the main character, the main female lead opposite of me. And the whole cast on stage is silent. The whole audience is silent. I point across the stage and I say, Anna, which was her real name. It was humiliating. You felt, you got to understand the enormity of the moment, like the house lights are down, so all I'm seeing is pitch black, I've got spotlights all over me, everyone on stage is just going, (gasps) I can feel it, right? I was exposed, I was completely exposed, it was humiliating in the truest sense, because I was brought low in that moment. And a lot of moments after that, especially like the school newspaper, my picture on the front, and the caption was, Anna, I mean Kate. So that was great. But it was true humility, right? It brought about some true humility in my life. Well, Paul here moves again to humility amongst the believers here at this church at Philippi. That there is joy to be found among Jesus' people when they are loving and moving toward each other in humility. And to reinforce that, he says in verse 5, right? That we have this mind in Christ Jesus. So no matter how hard or unnatural humility may be, we have it. We own it 
in Christ Jesus. So that's what I want to look at tonight as specifically as this first part of joy and humility. What we're going to look at is Jesus, what theologians, creeds, and confessions have historically referred to as Jesus's humiliation. That's what we read about here in Philippians chapter 2. So, and I want to look at three things specifically about this. The mind of Jesus, the emptying of Jesus, and the humbling of Jesus. Okay, the mind of Jesus, the emptying of Jesus, and the humbling of Jesus. The first thing here is the mind of Jesus. There's no denying, right, that what Paul calls us to here, humility, counting other people as more significant than yourself, that is hard. It has got to be one of the hardest things to do in this life. But we kind of talked about it a little bit last week. We all want to be like this. We all want to have friends that are like this. We all want to be a part of communities that are like this. But it is one of the most unnatural things for any of us to do, is it not? You, don't you love it when you're walking across campus and maybe you're, fine, you're, a, you know, you're a part of a crowd of people addressing a crowd of people and somebody waves, right? Maybe they even seem semi-familiar and you wave back only to find out, right? They were waving at somebody behind you. We love that feeling, don't we? You know, I thought about that. I think one of the reasons that we hate that feeling is because we've been exposed. We've been exposed thinking that something was about us when it wasn't. And it doesn't feel good. And the reason that it really bothers us is because we know in our heads our entire lives plays out that way. We think of everything in reference to ourselves, And in that moment when you think somebody's waving at you or smiling at you or whatever, and then you get caught realizing, nope, that wasn't for me, you're exposed. It's like social media, right? A lot of people like to say social media has just drastically increased narcissism in our age and our culture. I don't think that's true. I think social media has just given us all an outlet for what we already had in our hearts. We think about ourselves. Selfishness, self-centeredness is the most natural thing that we do. It is. It just is. But what Paul is driving home here at the outset is this is not, that is not the way with Jesus. And it never has been. What is the mind of Jesus? Paul says, humility, counting others more significant yourselves. He says, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, well, what is the mind of Jesus? What was it that motivated him? What was it that was so important to him? Who is he? What did he do? And why did he do it? What is the mind of Jesus? And so that's why I point this out here. You've got to see Paul's overwhelming emphasis here in this passage. Is that Jesus' humiliation is, was not like our humiliation. When theologians, when creeds and confessions use this term of Jesus' humiliation... They're not talking about something external to himself. We think of humiliation like my story, being exposed on stage, saying the wrong name in the middle of a huge moment, right? And I'll never forget it. Um, Amazing how that happens. We think of humiliation as something that happens out here that exposes something in here. But the overwhelming emphasis of of Paul here is that Jesus' humiliation was of his own will. Did you catch this? He volunteered for it. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He obeyed even to the point of death. That is the mind of Christ Jesus. That's it. It is laid bare for us there. 
We cannot deny it. He's humble. That's what Paul's telling us. Jesus is humble. God is humble in the truest sense of the word. So Jesus, all that he is, all that he does, in everything he does, says, feels, thinks, he counts others more significant than himself. That's mind-boggling, is it not? That is the mind of Jesus. That was the mind of Jesus. That is what he has proven to be his mind. Have you ever heard a story about somebody, like somebody tells a story about somebody you know, and your immediate response is, yep, that's Johnny, all right. It doesn't have to be about Johnny. It can be about anybody. But, you know, you just know that that story just perfectly sums up that person. So it would be interesting to think that if you were going to find one story or one passage that summed up God to you, what would it be? If you were asked to pick one attribute of God, what is God like? Would humble come to your mind? That's the beauty of this passage. Paul says, guys, be humble. Because God is humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we know this, that God is humble? The next two things. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. That's how we know. So let's break this down. The first one, or second point, is the emptying of Jesus. And let's just break it down here as we start reading in verse 5 and 6 and and forward. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? Well, before we can answer that, you have to back up to verse 6. And we read there that that though he was in the form of God... He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? What does it mean he was in the the form of God? Well, I'll just lay it out for you plainly. He's saying he is God. And he was God. And he always has been God. He is the very essence of God. We read this all over the New Testament, but just a few mentions. John chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, how can something be with something and be that something? The Trinity, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus, okay? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, the one by whom, through whom, to whom, for whom, all things were created and all things are upheld and exist. Jesus is, was, always has been, and always will be God Himself. There's never been a moment when Jesus was not God. In eternity past to eternity future, and in the 30 years that He lived on this, li- on this earth, Never a moment when he was not God. And he didn't take on godness. He didn't attain to godness. He is God. That's what we're told. One of the things that's lost in the English translation here is that this is actually a poem. And some people think maybe, some commentators wonder if maybe Paul was borrowing from a hymn that maybe the church at Philippi sang. Or some think maybe he was writing one here on the spot as he considered this. It moved him to poetry. But regardless, you have to understand the importance that, after, that, that somewhat after 20 to 30 years after Jesus left this earth, 
There were people all around, not just in Jerusalem, but had spread all around into East Asia Minor and all, and it was starting to go west uh, towards Europe that sang to and prayed about this Jesus as God. And look, these weren't just Greeks who like believed in Greek mythology. All of the early churches began with Jews. Paul and the apostles would go to places and they would go to the synagogue first and they would preach the gospel to the Jews first and then they would go out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the thing about Judaism is Judaism was and is the last religion on earth that ever would have called a man God. Yet here we have former Jews praising a man as God. Exactly, actually, that's what they killed Jesus for, by the way, right? Claiming that he was God. So he was in the form of God, meaning he was God. But secondly, this emptying, he didn't, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about this. What was it like for Jesus to be God? Think more before he became a man. What was it like for Jesus to be God? Well, this is it. Jesus possessed all the majesty of deity that God did. Jesus possessed all the powers and performed all the functions of deity just the same as God did. Jesus was invulnerable to pain, invulnerable to frustration, to embarrassment, to regret. He existed in perfect peace, harmony, and serenity. His supremacy was unmatched by anything ever for all of eternity. His satisfaction in all things was complete. He had every right by merely existing to be recognized, revered, served, and worshipped by angels and every other creature that was created. He had that right. All of these things were His by right because He is God and has been God for eternity. But what Paul tells us here, take that in, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, in other words, that he had every right at every moment to demand all of those things, and he didn't. He didn't insist upon his rights, what was rightfully his. He emptied himself. He laid those claims aside. Why? Because that's who he is. He's humble. This is the point after explaining something like that, point after point after point. This is where you try to think of a good illustration, right? To kind of connect the truth. But here's the thing with this truth of Jesus emptying himself. There is nothing, there is no analogy that can hold a candle to what Jesus did. To who he was and then what he did. The only other illustration I can think of is Jesus himself. I take you to John 13. In John chapter 13, in John's gospel, he begins his account of Jesus' last night on this earth. And something that I don't know that I had fully understood or recognized before is something that we read at the beginning of that chapter. John says this, that at this point, this last night, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. 
and knowing that the Father had given all things, catch this, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, he rose from supper, the last supper with his disciples. And you know what he did? Took off his outer garment, he took a towel, he took a bowl of water, and one by one washed his disciples' feet. Who would do that? Jesus would. Because that's who he is, that's who he's always been. And so he always will be. He's humble. He counts others as more significant than himself. He says things like, I came not to be served, but to serve. And he meant it. Again, you go, I, I get chills when I think, I, I just, you know, part of me, I've, I've always kind of skipped over the washing of the disciples' feet. Because I get weirded out when people do it in their weddings. No offense if that's something you're going to do. But as I was thinking about this this week. It blows me away. He knew that God had put everything in his hands. And so he proceeds to do what only the lowest on the totem pole servant would have done for people in a household. Who does that? Jesus does. So he did not count... He, he was the for, in the form of God. He was God. He did, not, he did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. But then also, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here's the key understanding to this emptying. Uh, one commentator says it like this. The question is not, what did he empty himself of? The question is, what did he empty himself into? You see, it's an emptying not by subtracting, not by taking something away of his godness, but by taking something on in addition. He emptied himself because he became a human. That was his humiliation. His humiliation, the cross is part of it. And everything that happens at the cross is a part of it. But his humiliation was the fact that he was conceived in the womb of a woman and born a man. That was his humiliation. He was fully God, but at this point in time in history, he also became fully man. Two distinct natures, yet one person. There's no easy explanation for it, but that is what we're told. He didn't make himself less God, but he did make himself fully human. But more so than all that, take in the words again, he took the form of a servant. You've got to hear the significance of that. He was the son, not a son. He was the, he is the son, knowing from eternity the love of his father. But he became a servant, a slave, under the law, bound to obey, charged with a mission, and threatened with dire consequences if he failed to carry it out. He had all the rights. He had all the rights. But he became a slave with no rights of his own will. Why? Because that's who he is. He's humble. He emptied himself. This is God. 
And God is humble. So he emptied himself, but he also humbled himself. The final thing here, the humbling of Jesus. My former campus minister is now a pastor in Oklahoma, Ricky Jones. He asked a a fascinating question in thinking about this. And I think you should think about it. Do you really want a humble God? On paper, it seems like a good thing, right? Do you really want a humble God? And this is in vintage Ricky fashion. He used to be the campus minister here, actually. In vintage Ricky fashion, he then says this. It'd be so much easier to believe in an arrogant God. Isn't that true? Like, just think about it. If God just, like, showed up maybe once a year, like, in the sky, everybody could see him. Just once a year, he showed up and just kind of crosses, crossing his arms. Maybe he's picking his teeth and he's like, what are y'all doing? Yeah. And then he goes, goes away, right? That would be easier to believe it. It wouldn't be comforting in any form or fashion. But it'd be easier to believe in, I think. Why? And Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, he puts it like this. Our modern world is actually okay with an infinite God. As long as he doesn't get too personal. Our world is actually pretty okay with an infinite God. As long as he doesn't get too personal. You want to know why it's hard to believe in a humble God? Because what it tells you is that he cares. He cares not just about big things, not just about big watershed moments in history. He cares about every single thing that happens in history. He cares about each and everything. And when I say each and everything, each and everything that has ever happened in your life. He cares about each and every thought and desire that you have ever had in your life. And let's just be honest. That is what we find so hard to believe. But again, the power of verse 8 there. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There you have it. That is how you know he cares. That is it. That is how you know. First, you see, it was an act of obedience. Meaning, He knew what he was doing, and he did it willingly. But there's another side to that, and I think we always need to hear it. If he did it in an act of obedience, it meant that somebody asked him to do it. The Father asked him to do it. You know, I think sometimes, whether consciously or subconsciously, we get this idea that Jesus did all these things to appease God, to make God love us. God loved us. Remember John 3.16. God loved us so much that he asked his son to do it. And his son loved us so much that his son said, okay, I'll do it. It's both. But secondly, it not only is it just an act of obedience, it was a long obedience. Now let this sit there. It was a long obedience. 
Meaning that the humiliation of Jesus, his humbling of himself, it wasn't just this one-time decision. It wasn't just this one-time act. It was a long obedience in a certain direction. Theologian Donald McLeod puts it like this. The condescension of being born is beyond imagining. But it was only the beginning of the long downward journey through the homelessness, poverty, and exhaustion, shame, and pain that led him to Gethsemane and ultimately to Calvary. It was a long obedience. So let's map it out. In eternity past, we can't even fathom this, but go ahead and imagine it. In eternity past, God ordains and says, this will be the plan of salvation. And Jesus says, yes. I will do it because I love them. Then he's born in time, in space. The maker of the world himself came into this world and not one person was watching. And then daily, daily as he grew up, daily as he went about his ministry, daily he had to make a choice to reenact and renew that decision of humbling himself, moving day by day, step by step, teaching by teaching, miracle after miracle, conflict after conflict, moving further and further and further, closer and closer to the shame and the pain that awaited him at the end of his life. And he did it. And so ultimately it led him to his death. And so ultimately it led him to his death That's not supposed to just make sense. The eternal second person of the Trinity, who was immune to death, deliberately took a mortal form. The immortal became mortal and suffered mortality. He made the choice every day to move toward death, deciding not to be his not to be death's master, but to be its willing victim. He accepted a mission and a destiny where it would have been a sin for him not to die. But again, here it is. It wasn't just death, but death in its cruelest form. And it's not its cruelest form just because it was on a cross, just because it was gruesome, though it was. It was death in its worst form because in this case, it was the instrument and symbol of the curse of God himself due to all of sin. And he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so you soak it all in. On the cross, he would cry and not be heard. He would lose all sense of the divine sonship that he had enjoyed for eternity. He would lose all sense of his father's love and care in that moment. And Donald McLeod again puts it like this. Into that tiny space, his body in, on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And into that fraction of time, the ninth hour on Good Friday. God gathered all the sin of the world. And there... And then he condemned it in the flesh of his own son. Again, on the cross, at its darkest point, 
The Son knew Himself. Jesus of Nazareth knew Himself at that moment as only one thing. Sin. And He knew His Father as only one thing. Sin's righteous and just avenger. In that moment, He was alone as sin with a holy God. It was at that moment, the author, the giver, and sustainer of life himself so gave up his rights that he died. He humbled himself, even unto death. I was thinking about this earlier. I've always loved this passage. But as I was thinking earlier, I was like, the more I plumbed the depths of it, I was like, I think I could spend a year talking about this week after week. But let me close with this. You see this death. He humbled himself unto death. So the thing about the Old Testament, there's this sacrificial system for the people of God, right? That clearly taught them in their daily lives to trust And put their trust in God Himself, even with their sin. And it clearly taught them that there was a means of a substitution of something else bearing their sin and the curse that was due it. But what we see in that system, what was supposed to be clear in that system, is that it was so glaringly incomplete. Why? Because they would go to the temple one day and offer sacrifice. But if they came back the next day, guess what they had to do again? Offer sacrifice. And if they came back again the next day or the next or the next or the next, it was always started with the same thing. Sacrifice. It was incomplete. You want to know why? Many reasons, but this one, the most glaring. The animals were not willing sacrifices. They had no choice in the matter. Without a willing sacrifice, it would always be incomplete because that would mean that our wills, the things that we will, were not covered. It's why, it's exactly what Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, foresaw. And what he foresaw was that only a man can do it. And let me read it to you, just a few verses from it. Isaiah 53. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. It was there. Seven, eight hundred years before Jesus is even born. 
And this is what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the first time that Jesus heard that from Isaiah 53. In eternity past. You want to know what he did? He looked at his father. And then he looked at ruined, rebellious sinners. And he said, I'll do it. Who would do that? Jesus would. Because he's humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you even now condescend to us again that we might see you that we might know you that we might feel the comfort and healing touch of your hand that we might know again and again the one who emptied himself and humbled himself for us it's in his name that we pray amen